On September 15th, the House Ways and Means Committee approved a slew of tax increases as part of the Build Back Better reconciliation legislation. The package adds up to $3.5 trillion in spending offset by tax increases for both corporations and individuals. On today's episode of the Fiona Show Tax Provision, we're taking a closer look at the fine print, examining the corporate tax proposals along with what they mean for your company's income tax provision. Cross-Border Solutions tax provision expert Howard Telson is here to help us weed through the details. Welcome back, Howard. Thanks, Matt. So let's start with what exactly does this legislation represent and what is the process for getting such a bill approved from here? Yeah, so let's take a step back, actually, and, and, and go back you know, in, in time to the beginning of the year where the Biden administration laid out their high-level legislative agenda for the year to come. So, so their agenda basically had two components. The first was rescue, and the second was recovery. So rescue, or the American Rescue Plan Act, has already become law, and, and that was signed in, in March 2021. That was the $1.9 trillion bill with some minor kind of tax increases, but it was mostly deficit financed. And, and, and recall, this is the act that included the direct stimulus payments to folks, $1,400 payments, and then additional kind of PPP loans and other small business stimulus and relief and things like that. So that, that was the first piece of the puzzle, rescue. And now if we shift over to the kind of the second piece of the Biden administration's plan, the recover agenda, this piece is still very much under kind of negotiation, right? So under this recover umbrella, we originally had two broad proposals that were up for consideration. So first was the American Jobs Plan, focused on hard infrastructure, things like roads and bridges, you know, et cetera. And then second was the American Families Plan, which kind of targeted, you know, quote unquote, human infrastructure or kind of investing in people. And as we moved along throughout the year, these two plans sort of have morphed a bit. And while originally there was a thought that these two plans could end up being actually one bill just all together, this has now sort of morphed into one bipartisan bill. So one bill that has kind of support from some Republicans and then the Democrats. And that kind of includes the core infrastructure items and not as much really from a tax perspective. And that's about $1.2 trillion in spending. So that's one bill. And then the other bill is really a Democratic bill, which focuses on the key Democratic spending priorities and includes quite a bit on the tax side. So this bill totals about $3.5 trillion in spending, and it's really a much bigger scope. So let's just think about a bill's path to pass it. There's essentially two paths, and each of these bills you know, could potentially take a different path. So first is the bipartisan path, and this is, of course, when we're talking about this bipartisan infrastructure bill. So this would require 60 votes in the Senate on behalf of the bill. And as the Senate is evenly split 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans, the Democrats would need some Republican votes to pass a bill this way. And this is really just how the bipartisan bill actually passed the Senate. And it had a total tally of 69 votes. This bill has yet to be considered in the House. So we'll have to kind of wait and see if the bill gets through the House and ultimately onto the president's desk to sign into law. But this infrastructure bill isn't really much of a tax bill. So we'll kind of table that for the time being and focus on the quote-unquote Democratic bill, which really has all the good tax stuff in it. So, you know, if we home in on on the Democratic bill, really the the tax bill, let's consider kind of the second path to getting a bill passed in the Senate. And this is by using what's known as budget reconciliation, which for purposes of of a budget bill, there's a special rule in the Senate where you could have a simple majority vote to basically pass the bill through. So as noted, we have a 50-50 split in the Senate. 
So the Democrats would need all of their senators to be on board. And then the vice president would essentially be the tie-breaking vote. And let's remember, the path, this, this particular path on, on getting a bill through isn't new. The 2017 tax reform bill, you know, the Trump tax reform bill, was actually passed using this kind of budget reconciliation methodology with just a simple majority. It's happened in the past and it very well could happen again. But, but just kind of understanding, you know, those two paths to passage, you know, we mentioned the bipartisan bill already passed in the Senate and, and now up for consideration in the House. But the question becomes, you know, where's the Democratic reconciliation bill in this process, right? And that's kind of really what we'll focus on today. So just for some more background, so on September 15th, the House Ways and Means Committee approved $3.5 trillion of spending and tax relief provisions, which are offset in part by corporate and individual tax increases by a 24 to 19 vote. And this bill is known as the Build Back Better bill. So, you know, it's been uh, in the news quite a bit and, and folks have probably heard about it, but this is kind of will be the, the focus of today's discussion. Now, just kind of stepping back and thinking about the process overall, in terms of the next steps in the process from where we are today, which could change pretty rapidly, you know, what would basically have to happen is differences between the House proposal, this House Ways and Means proposal, and the Senate tax proposals would need to be resolved. And then this bill could essentially be put up for a vote in both chambers. But, you know, in addition, the Democrats kind of need to ensure they have the requisite support to pass the bill through both chambers as well, which currently doesn't seem quite guaranteed. So this is kind of all up in the air right now in terms of, you know, how this bill gets through its possible scope. You know, that, that could change certainly from here. It probably won't increase in scope, but it could definitely decrease in scope. So, you know, a lot of this is kind of up in the air and, and we'll, we'll just kind of have to monitor that, that progress going forward. Right, right. As you noted, the bill includes both individual and corporate tax changes. For the purpose of this podcast, we're focusing on the corporate side of things. Why does this bill matter in terms of calculating your corporate tax provision? I think we'll get into the tax components of the bill shortly, but just holistically, when we think about the tax provision, we need to think of the two key pieces that make up the tax provision. So we have the current piece, which is essentially an estimate of current year tax liability. And then we have the deferred piece, which really serves to accrue a benefit or expense for the future impact of items on a company's tax liability. The deferred side is really driven by things like temporary book to tax differences, net operating loss and credits, things that impact your tax liability in the future. For a kind of a full refresher on those concepts, we do have previous episodes that go into detail on both the current and the deferred sides of the house. Given these two components at hand, we need to understand how any changes kind of proposed in this bill would impact a company's current year tax liability and then also their deferred tax profile. And, and there really are two kind of buckets of changes to consider. So one is a change to the tax rate, you know, which we'll talk about. And then the other is changes to the tax base. Now, the rate is obviously kind of self-explanatory, but the base would be kind of the income or expenses mix that's changing and, and what actually the rate is being applied to. Changes to a tax rate are fairly simple on the current provision. Basically, in the period where the tax rate is effective, a company would apply that rate to their taxable income and calculate their kind of applicable you know, federal tax expense. For We'll just focus on federal since we're talking about right now, federal U.S. tax reform. So, you know, if, if a rate changes, you would apply that, that new rate in the year it's effective to a company's taxable income and calculate their applicable federal tax expense. That's very similar to how you would do a tax return because that's kind of what the current provision mirrors. 
But the changes to the tax rate on the deferred side of the house are, are a lot more complex. So for purposes of the deferred tax calculation, which, you know, as I said, looks at the future impact of items on a company's tax liability, companies need to consider how these are impacted even before a new rate is effective. So rather, you know, a company's deferred tax assets and liabilities must be revalued as soon as a new tax rate is enacted. So not effective, but enacted. And by enacted, I mean that essentially it's signed into law. And, you know, we do have a, a very detailed discussion on enactment versus effective and, and what those terms mean and how exactly the deferred rate change works if you tune into our Biden uh, tax plan podcast right. uh, episode. But just at a high level, let's just say this Build Back Better plan is signed into law within 2021, of course, a, a very real possibility. But its tax rate change isn't effective until 2022. Once again, that's kind of the most likely scenario. Well, in, in this case, folks are still going to have to reckon with the rate change on their deferred tax assets and liabilities since this rate change would be enacted in 2021. So on folks' 2021 provision, they're still going to have to deal with this, even though this tax rate change isn't effective until 2022. So for purposes of kind of the deferred revaluation, it doesn't matter if it's effective, but instead it's just a matter of is it enacted or is it signed into law? And if so, companies need to consider the impact and revalue their deferred tax assets and liabilities in the year it's enacted. So in this case, it would be in 2021. So this could impact companies very, very soon on their provision. And now, of course, you know, just shifting gears slightly, you know, any change to the rate overall also impacts the effective tax rate. So as the statutory rate potentially increases, this would generally, of course, increase companies' effective tax rates. And that would be in the year it's effective. So that would be most likely, you know, 2022 when that, rate, when that rate change is actually effective. But the deferred tax revaluation would also impact the ETR as well. And as mentioned, this would be in the year of enactment. So potentially, you know, that would be 2021 for companies. So you would potentially have to revalue your deferreds in 2021, and then you would have that ETR impact in 21 as well. So things could be potentially coming for in terms of provision very, very soon in terms of this tax reform bill. And quite importantly, when we think about all this, there's tax planning considerations companies could do too to potentially soften the blow of an increased rate. And this could involve engaging in accounting method changes to potentially accelerate income into 2021 and delay deductions from 2021 to future years, which is a little bit counterintuitive. But this would essentially cause companies' income to be taxed at a lower rate today rather than potentially the higher rate next year, right? And it would push a valuable deduction this year into a higher rate period next year where it's worth even more. We did cover some of these tax planning strategies as well in that Biden plan episode. You know, folks are interested for more of a deep dive in those strategies. But, you know, it's a bit uh, kind of counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what folks were looking to do when Trump tax reform happened in, in 17 when the rate decreased and folks were looking to kind of delay income and then accelerate deductions into the higher tax year. So a bit of the opposite here, but that's just a few considerations, you know, for the provision and then planning in general that, that folks I think need to start thinking about here. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. 
Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So a quick question for our listeners who might be confused by this by now. Uh, if the law isn't enacted until 2022, why is it affecting taxpayers now? And when you say it would affect taxpayers in 2021, does that mean that they'd have to go back and revisit all the quarter statements and revisions they did in 2021 or just the annual? Basically, if a law is enacted in the year, that means you need to account for it for accounting purposes in the year it's enacted. So it doesn't matter if it's effective, it'll be effective in 22, but it's enacted, so you need to account for it. And the way it works on the tax provision is you would account for it through your deferred taxes. So that's one piece of it. But then the second piece, you know, to your point is you already did all these quarterly provisions in 2021. Do you need to go back? And the, the answer is no, because it wasn't enacted at that point. And how much is this bill expected to raise in tax revenue to offset its spending initiatives? It's looking at estimates to increase federal revenues by about $2.1 trillion over the next decade. And that'd be minus $1 trillion in expanded kind of tax credits for individuals and businesses. So it'd be a net revenue increase of about $1.06 trillion. So fairly big numbers here. And that includes about $200 billion as a result of additional funds being poured into the IRS for additional enforcement. Mm -hmm. So excluding tax revenue kind of expected from this increased tax compliance from IRS enforcement, the proposals would raise about $862 billion over the next 10 years, at least according to congressional estimates, which are a bit far from scientific, but that's kind of what they're looking at in terms of the actual numbers surrounding this. The bill itself will require $3.5 trillion in spending over a 10-year period, of course, Spending has to be offset by tax increases, in this case on the wealthy, more than $400,000 in income, and on corporations. What kinds of changes to the current tax regime does the current bill entail in terms of the corporate tax rate? First, it's worth noting that this change to the rate, and in general, the other changes we're discussing today are prospective, so effective January 1st, 22. But of course, as mentioned, even despite this effective date of 22, there still may very well be significant tax provision considerations, even on the 2021 provision. And we, you know, we just kind of covered that. But when we think about our deferreds, it's all about the enactment date, right? So we really need to think about when this is enacted, what impact does this have on our provision that's really on the deferred side, as opposed to the current side, which would be more impacted in 22 when the law is actually, quote unquote, effective as opposed to enacted. Now, if we think about kind of the rate itself, what's being proposed is essentially a graduated federal income tax structure uh, for most corporations. So corporations with taxable income under 400,000 would be subject to a new rate of 18%. Companies with taxable income above 400K, uh, but under 5 million would be at a 21% rate. And then if you're over 5 million, you'd be subject to a 26.5% rate. And then taxpayers with income over 10 million would be assessed an additional tax to phase out the benefit of lower rates and essentially be taxed at a flat 26.5% rate. So when you hear folks kind of talk about the rate today, you know, under this Build Back Better plan, 
usually they'll say the corporate tax rate is jumping from the 21% it's at now to the 26.5%, which would apply to kind of the higher income corporate taxpayers. So with this bill, the U.S. would have about the third highest corporate tax rate in the OECD. And it's also worth noting that this House Ways and Means rate of 26.5% came in below the Biden plan rate of 28%. And it would essentially represent a 5.5% hike from our current 21% rate. And further, you know, one thing to note, just while we're focused on the rate, is this Ways and Means bill doesn't include a minimum tax on book income as the Biden plan did with their 15% rate on minimum tax for the largest company's book income. So it doesn't include this sort of alternative minimum tax regime of this 15%. It's focused just on this core 26.5% rate. And this whole discussion when it comes to rate change in the provision would, of course, apply here. So we would have a rate going up. So, you know, what I just mentioned about folks trying to potentially uh, accelerate income into 2021 at the lower rate of 21% and then delay deductions from 21 to future years, you know, let's just say 2022 and beyond to get the deduction at a higher rate still definitely applies. And then, of course, the impact of a deferred rate change would definitely be felt on this 5.5% rate change, which could be very significant for many companies. One of the Biden administration's original goals in Build Back America was to bring overseas companies home. His proposals were very focused on bringing back manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. and giving companies incentives to invest here. So let's talk about the international tax components for companies. What does this reconciliation bill look like from an international tax perspective? Specifically, let's start with guilty. Yeah, so I think just in general, it's important to note, you know, outside of the rate change, there are several other tax changes kind of proposed in this bill. But the bulk of the tax changes and really the most significant ones for corporations do revolve around these international tax measures. So I I think guilty is a great place to start. So just a refresher on, on what guilty is, it's global intangible low tax income. And this was introduced in the 2017 Tax Reform Act, right? So this is a U.S. income inclusion on earnings of foreign subsidiaries which under current law is taxed at the normal 21% corporate tax rate, but companies were allowed a 50% reduction in this inclusion through what's known as the Section 250 deduction, which brings the guilty tax rate to 10.5%, so half of 21%. And that reduced income is also allowed to be offset by foreign tax credits, which are subject to expense allocation rules, which we get into, and then a 20% haircut as well. So generally, due to the application of these rules and the limitations on foreign tax credits, most companies with positive foreign earnings end up having some portion of incremental guilty tax today. Okay, so with that background kind of in hand, the first change to mention to the guilty regime is the rate. So of course, that 21% corporate tax rate, which we mentioned is jumping to 26.5%. That's one factor that's going to play into this. But then we have a change to the Section 250 deduction being proposed, which would reduce it from 50% to 37.5%. So this would essentially bring the guilty tax rate from the 10.5% it's at currently, or 50% of 21%, to 16.56%, or essentially getting that 37.5% deduction off of 26.5% of the tax rate. So it brings it to 16.5% essentially under this proposal. So you have a raise in the guilty rate there. So that would be kind of a negative uh, for taxpayers in general. Then the question is, what happens to the calculation of the guilty inclusion itself? So, you know, before I mentioned you have changes to the tax rate and then you have changes to the base. So we just kind of covered the rate. But then the question is, well, 
what does that rate apply to? What's the base? So currently within the guilty calculation, companies can offset income of one foreign country with a loss of another. However, in this Build Back Better proposal, it contemplates calculating guilty with a country-by-country country approach, where the inclusion is computed for each individual jurisdiction a company operates in. So this proposed approach would result in kind of difficulty offsetting losses against income across countries. So if a company has income in one country, but a loss in another, currently, you know, under today's law, currently that loss could offset the income and then result in, you know, less overall guilty tax. But under this proposal, the Build Back Better proposal, the loss would just sit there unused and the income inclusion would come through. So definitely not a favorable result there for taxpayers either. However, kind of one area of relief here is a generated loss for a jurisdiction could be carried forward on an unlimited basis to offset guilty income in future years for that same country. So currently losses are kind of use it or lose it for guilty. So, you know, they just expire if you generate a loss that you can't use. So in this case, since you carry it forward, it would be kind of a helpful change. But overall, this country by country approach is, is generally going to be a negative for many taxpayers. One other element of guilty is something known as QBI, Qualified Business Asset Investment. And this essentially allows for an offset against guilty for a portion of what is known as a quote-unquote routine return on tangible assets in foreign countries. So under current law, it's currently situated at 10%, and this plan would reduce it to 5%. You alluded previously to kind of bringing jobs back to the U.S., and this is one provision that was controversial following its 2017 passage since it provided a benefit to companies with assets like manufacturing equipment and things like that which were situated abroad and not in the U.S. So it's sort of kind of incentivizing behavior that, you know, many U.S. folks would not like. So, so that, that's a change there. And then the last kind of key change to guilty under this proposal are the changes to the foreign tax credit rules. So as mentioned before, any residual guilty tax after that Section 250 deduction is allowed to be offset by a foreign tax credit. But this is currently subject to a 20% haircut and then things known as expense allocation rules. So this often results in companies essentially having some residual guilty tax. Well, this proposal would reduce the haircut on the FTC from 20% to 5%. And also, and this is really key, would limit only the Section 250 deduction as the only expense allocated to the guilty basket. So between the reduced haircut and the reduction in expenses allocated, this should help kind of lessen the burden on guilty on many companies. However, you know, as mentioned before, not having the ability to offset to apply loss offsets across countries could negate some of these benefits. So, you know, it really comes down to kind of some good and some bad when it comes to guilty for taxpayers. Each corporation is going to need to model this out and see how it impacts them. But just kind of taking a step back and kind of comparing this to the Biden tax plan, there's some similarities and some differences. So the rate in Biden's plan was 21% for guilty after the 250 deduction. So it had a higher rate than this proposal from that perspective. And the Biden plan also actually contemplated completely removing the QBI benefit. So that was a bit harsher too there. Uh, the plan does, however, stick with the country by country approach as proposed in the Biden plan. And it even provides a few more details as to how you know, exactly it works and how the foreign tax credit rules work as well. You know, just kind of taking all that into account, when we think about the tax provision, of course, guilty for most companies is a permanent adjustment. And now some companies could have treated guilty as a deferred item. It was an accounting policy. 
that companies could have made. However, this was extremely rare and very few companies actually ended up tracking deferreds on guilty. So in general, it's treated as a period cost or a permanent adjustment, and it's a driver of the effective tax rate. So, you know, as noted, the guilty rates going up and this country by country rules could mean increased guilty for many companies. So, you know, if that's the case, a higher guilty would mean a higher effective tax rate, a higher taxable income overall as well. But for some companies, things like carrying a loss forward and getting rid of some of these expense allocation rules could actually help them and it could actually drive their guilty rate down. So it could actually mean a potentially a, a lower effective tax rate and lower taxable income as well. So, you know, it just kind of depends. Each company is going to need to model out the facts and how it impacts the provision. In general, assuming you didn't make that deferred policy election for guilty, in general, this change to guilty would be effective in 22. And most companies won't have to worry about this until they're kind of 2022 provision for the most part. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp so howard guilty and even just the way it's spelled out no pun intended was set up to penalize companies for having overseas profits as opposed to booking them in the united states but do these changes actually make guilty more of a penalty there was criticism when guilty came out that its capacity as a penalty was softened by deductions and benefits i think it depends on the company i mean like the country by country approach definitely and then the rate goes up so those things are both pretty much bad for companies but then you could carry losses forward so that's a benefit like let's just say you were a loss company this year and you would just lose that guilty loss in the current law. But next year, if you're a loss company, you could carry that loss forward if you generate a guilty loss. And then if you generate a guilty income in the next year, you could offset it. So that would be good. But like, let's just say that this country by country approach, you could have a huge loss in one country and then income in another, and you would end up paying guilty tax. Well, this year you wouldn't because you could offset it. But then these expense allocation rules are also important because Originally, when they were talking about guilty, they said that basically if you didn't have a rate above like 13% or so, so like if your income is taxed above 13% or so in other countries, you wouldn't be subject to guilty. That was like the initial proposal. So it was really targeting like low tax countries and, and moving, shifting income to low tax places. That was the initial. But then with the foreign tax credit rules and the expense allocation rules, what ended up happening is companies, even that, that operate in high tax jurisdictions abroad, 
would end up having a guilty because of the way the foreign tax credit rules work. So this sort of helps with that because now they're only having this one expense allocated to this guilty bucket, the Section 250 deduction, and before you had to allocate other expenses to that bucket. And basically, when you allocate an expense to this foreign tax credit bucket, it just reduces your foreign tax credit, essentially. So it's a bad thing. So that, that's actually a benefit. So I would say overall, it really just depends. They're talking about it like it's going to raise revenue, which I think is mostly because of that country by country change, and then also the rate going up. But I think for some companies, it's going to help them a lot too. Interesting. So it definitely puts an emphasis on strategic tax planning. Yeah. And like modeling it out and seeing how it impacts you. But we'll see. I mean, if it passes exactly in this form, we'll see what happens. But I, I think some companies will probably be happy and other companies will, will really be hit. Some mixed messages in the place regarding foreign-derived intangible income. How have these rules affected the FIDI benefit, so-called? As a refresher, uh, FIDI is a deduction relating to a portion of a domestic company's intangible income that's derived from serving foreign markets, right? So the calculation is both complex and sort of mechanical. We won't get into all the details here, but essentially it represents excess income over a fixed return on the depreciable tangible property used in a trader business of a corporation. So it's all about kind of this, this excess return over this tangible property that you get from serving foreign markets. So things like foreign sales and, and services and things like that. So the Build Back Better proposal would take the FIDI deduction, which is currently 37.5% of eligible income, and it would reduce that benefit to 21.875%. So that's actually less harsh than the Biden plan, which proposed to completely eliminate the FEDI benefit, which some see as kind of promoting sales to foreign countries and sort of outbound activities as opposed to sales and operations in the U.S. So that's important. But one other wrinkle here is the proposal would also get rid of the taxable income limitation on the Section 250 deduction, where if companies didn't have enough income previously, their benefit would be limited. So there, there is some relief here, you know, which could be really important for companies in net operating losses positions or, or low-income positions that were previously kind of limited in their FIDI benefit by taxable income limitation, where they may not have that limitation anymore. And then, you know, if we just think holistically about FIDI and, and guilty, right, kind of the common denominator here is they're both under Section 250 of the Internal Revenue Code in terms of the Section 250 deduction under guilty and then the 50 deduction as a whole. Guilty, we mentioned that Section 250 deduction being scaled back. Right now, it's 50% under current law, and it'd be scaled back to 37.5%. So that's under Section 250, reducing that benefit or relief that companies get on guilty. And likewise, 50 under Section 250 right now is that 37.5% benefit and this is going to be scaled back to that 21.875%. So Section 250, both those elements of it, guilty and fitty, are being scaled back. So less relief for taxpayers overall with the Section 250. But this relief in terms of removing this taxable income limitation is very important, particularly like, like mentioned for companies in NOL positions or low income positions. So if we take a step back and think about the provision and FIDI as a whole, FIDI is, is a permanent adjustment, okay, so period cost, and it's a driver of the effective tax rate. 
essentially this is go back better plans can result in less fitty for most companies potentially you know they could get the benefit of that taxable income limitation so it could go up for potentially for some companies but for others it would be less and that would generally mean a higher effective tax rate because you would removing part of that benefit if you did benefit from the taxable income limitation maybe it's possible your your fitty goes up and that would actually mean a lower effective tax rate as well but in general this is looking at less fitty for most companies and then a higher effective tax rate. Since this is a permanent adjustment, we're really looking at an impact to the 2022 provision most likely, and we're not as concerned about the 21 provision with FIDI since it doesn't really impact your deferred tier. But there are other modifications to those laws too. Tell us about the new BEAT structure. BEAT is essentially an alternative tax related to certain deductible outbound payments made to foreign countries, which erode the U.S. tax base. So currently it's at a 10% rate. Under the Biden plan, this entire regime was actually changing to something called the shield, which was much more broad than the beat. However, in this proposal, the beat kind of in its historical structure sort of remains intact, but the 10% rate would essentially be retained through 23, and then the rate jumps gradually to 12.5%, and then ultimately 15% after 2025. A major change here is who may qualify for the beat. So under current law, it's reserved for companies with over 500 million in receipts and something called a base erosion percentage over 3%, meaning there was some amount of significant kind of deductible outbound payments to foreign countries, essentially. Well, this proposal retains kind of the 500 million receipt threshold, but it gets rid of the 3% base erosion rule, essentially making the application of this rule much, much, much more broad. That's kind of the bad, but a benefit here is all credits would be able to reduce the beat, which isn't the case right now name of credit, things like R&D and such, you'd be able to use those to offset the beat, which you cannot do right now. So if we take a step back and think about the provision in beat, beat is essentially a period cost or generally accounted for as a permanent difference on the provision. In general, if a a company currently is subject to beat, it's going to drive your effective tax rate, it would drive it up. Now, with the expansion of beat here, it's mostly bad news on the beat front, besides that one kind of work with being able to offset it with, with tax credits. But with the expansion to be here, likely this would be you know, a driver of effective tax rates, bringing them up for companies that would be effective, especially given the much broader scope of it, removing that base erosion percentage threshold. So likely a negative uh, on companies' effective tax rates, since this is a period cost or a perm, this would be something we're looking at accounting for once again on the 2022 year when it's effective as opposed to 2021 since it's not really impacting your deferreds. Research and development tax credits are known to help companies lower their effective tax rates. TCJA legislation has a provision whereby countries would have to amortize their expenses over five years, starting in the tax year 2021. I know we've been watching this for a while. How does this tax bill address that amortization provision? Yeah, so essentially it delays that requirement to amortize to begin after 2025 instead of for tax year 21. So taxpayers with research and development expenses would continue to have the options of they could deduct them in the year paid or incurred. They could capitalize and amortize them, you know, generally over five years under section 174, or they could capitalize and amortize them over 10 years under section 59E. So, you know, a benefit here of kind of being able to delay this amortization requirement, which didn't actually exist in the Biden plan. What kinds of issues could this new tax plan present for U.S. companies? You know, I think at a high level, results really will vary depending on the company. 
But in general, the bill's intention is, is to raise corporate tax bills, right? That's what it's set out to do. And that's what, when it comes to tax, it's looking at uh, being a revenue raiser. So when we, you know, we, when we think about these provisions, the, the rate increase is, you know, that, that's generally going to negatively impact pretty much all corporations for the most part. And that, that's kind of a key driver of this plan. You know, when we think about guilty, the change could kind of go either way for taxpayers in general, given the higher rate in the country by country calculation. The House, you know, once again, budget this as a revenue raiser. So overall, it would increase tax liabilities on corporations uh, as well, although some could potentially benefit some of the new expense allocation rules and law carry forward rules, et cetera. FIDI would be a reduced benefit. They're just basically reducing the rate there. So that's definitely going to be a reduced benefit. And then B with kind of a broader application, even though there may be some potential offset with using credits, when we think about FIDI and B, we're looking at raising tax bills there overall. And then, you know, I think about just overall, you know, particularly on the guilty side, but, but all of this really, there's likely going to be, you know, additional compliance burdens for multinational companies. If we think about guilty specifically, they're going to have to calculate that guilty liability on a country by country or jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, which currently companies will generally go on an entity by entity basis and then sort of lump things together. But some, you know, may take some shortcuts here and there. But this, you know, these new rules are going to force companies to look at it on a jurisdictional basis and evaluate the facts from there. And then also track loss carry forwards as well, which you didn't have to do before. So that's another, while maybe a good thing for some companies, that, that's another compliance burden as well. And then just overall, when we think about rate changing, changes to international tax structure, of course, we have to consider kind of tax planning strategies. That will be top of mind for most companies. Obviously, it's getting late in the year. There could be companies that want to execute accounting method changes in 21 to accelerate income into 21 or slow down deductions to get a more valuable deduction when the rate goes up. I think companies will be thinking about that in addition to how do they plan around these international tax changes. And then, you know, companies are also going to need to consider how these rules are actually going to shake out in their final form, if at all, and how they coordinate with kind of the OECD pillar one, pillar two initiatives as well. So there's a lot of kind of moving pieces here. And as companies are thinking about this and modeling it out, it's not the easiest task to do. Right. And just even in that vein, what could still change regarding this package before it's passed? Yes. I mean, you know, I guess that's assuming it is passed. Right. <laughs> I guess, you know, where we're at today is, you know, the Ways and Means Committee has suggested that their package could definitely change before being considered, you know, before the full House. In terms of the tax rate side, there's some Democrats that would have preferred to see higher rates. Obviously, the Biden plan had a higher rate specifically a higher rate applied to uh, multinationals foreign earnings. So that would be kind of on the guilty side. It is a scaled back rate from, from the Biden plan as well. So, you know, that could be potentially a point of contention. Also, some Democrats feel there's an incentive to, you know, invest and create jobs overseas with things like the FIDI and the QBI kind of remaining intact as opposed to just being completely repealed, like under the Biden plan. So, you know, we'll see if, if, if additional changes come. And obviously, this proposal doesn't have Republican support, but, you know, they do need to get all the Democrats on board here. So it'll be important to kind of appease some of them. And, you know, we'll see what changes result because of that. We're heading into the weekend, so maybe it's best to take this question with regard to next week. But what is next? The, the fate of the budget reconciliation bill or this Build Back Better plan seems somewhat tied to the fate of the quote-unquote bipartisan infrastructure legislation that we discussed earlier. 
particularly as you know certain progressives seems to be viewing kind of the larger bill as a condition to support the bipartisan ones. So they they really want this build back better bill to get through and you know they may use it as a condition to support this bipartisan infrastructure legislation so democrats have pushed back voting in the house so we'll see when the vote actually takes place doesn't seem like currently they have a coordinated effort and everyone on board to push this through so that's still kind of up in the air when we think about the breakdown of the senate and the house senate democrats can't afford to lose a single vote assuming no Republicans go on board, which doesn't seem to be the case. So they need every single Democrat to come on board, given the 50-50 split in the Senate. And then even House Democrats can't really afford to lose many votes either, given their slim majority. So the Democrats really need a, a very united front here. We'll see if they could get there. I think we'll have to stay tuned and you know it'll be exciting to kind of see how it plays out. I think from here, our listeners are going to have to tune in to meet the press in the Sunday morning shows if they want to know what happens next to, to our heroes uh, <laughs> in, in this adventure, but, but uh, more or another podcast overall. But until then, thank you so much, Howard, as always. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. We want to thank Howard for joining us for this very informative discussion. If you like today's podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. My name is Matthew DeMello, and I host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer and wrote today's script. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.